Chapter Three of Mister Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mister Trunnell, Mate of the Ship Pirate, by T. Jenkins Haynes, Chapter Three. After I had recovered from my somewhat violent exertions and bound up the slight cut that Andrews had made in my hand with his knife. Eight bells had struck, and the steward brought aft the cabin-hash. The skipper went below, and Trunnell and I followed. Captain Thompson seated himself at the head of the table and signed for us to take our places. Then it suddenly occurred to me that I was only second mate, and consequently did not rate the captain's table. Trunnell noticed my hesitation, but said nothing— and the skipper fell to with such a hearty good will that he appeared to entirely forget my presence. I hastily made some excuse to get back on deck, and the little bushy-headed mate smiled and nodded approvingly at me as I went up the alleyway forward. I was much pleased at this delicate hint on his part, for many mates would have made uncalled-for remarks at such a blunder. It showed me that the little giant who could keep me from being carved to rat-line stuff could be civil, also. I was much taken with him, owing to what had happened, and I looked down at him as he ate, for I could see him very well as he stood near the mizzen on the port side of the cabin's skylight. The glass of the hatch was raised to let the cabin air, and I watched the bushy head beneath, with its aggressive beard bending over the dirty tablecloth. The large squat nose seemed to sniff the good grub as the steward served the fresh beef, and Trunnell made ready with his knife. He laid the blade on his plate, and heaped several large chunks of the meat and potatoes upon it. Then he dropped his chin and seemed to shut his eyes as he carefully conveyed the load to his mouth, drawing the steel quickly through his thick lips without spilling more than a commensurate amount of the stuff upon his beard, and injuring himself in no way whatever. The quick jerk with which he slipped the steel clear so as to have it ready for another load made me a trifle nervous, but it was evident that he was not a novice at eating. Indeed, the skipper appeared to admire his dexterity, for I saw his small glinting eyes look sharply from the little fellow to the boyish third officer who sat to starboard. "'Never had no call for a fork, eh?' said he, after watching the mate apparently come within an inch of cutting his head in two. "'Nope,' said Trunnell. They ate in silence for some minutes. "'I like to see a fellow what can make out with the fewest tools. Tools are good enough for mechanics. A bit and a bar'll do for a man. Ever been to New York?' "'Nope,' said Trunnell. There was a moment's silence. "'I might have known that,' said the skipper, as if to himself. Trunnell appeared to sniff sarcasm. "'Oh, I've been to one or two places in my time,' said he. "'There ain't nothing remarkable about New York except the animals, and I don't care for those.' "'What you mean?' "'Oh, I was close to into the beach off Sandy Hook once, when we were trying to get to the southard, and I see an elephant about a hundred feet high on the island across the bay.' There was a fellow aboard as said they had cows there, just as big what gave milk. I wouldn't have believed him, but for the fact that there were the elephant before my eyes. 
"'Stuffed, man, he was stuffed,' explained the captain. "'Stuffed or no, there he were,' persisted Trunnell. "'It would have been no bigger stuffed than alive. "'Tain't likely they could have stretched his hide more than a foot.' The skipper gave the third mate a sly look, and his nose worked busily like a parrot's beak for a few minutes. "'You believe lots of things, eh?' said he while his nose worked and wrinkled in amusement. "'I believe in pretty much all I sees and some little I hears,' said Trunnell, dryly. "'Specially in elephants, eh? A hundred feet high.' "'But not in arguing over facts,' retorted Trunnell. "'No, sink me, when I finds I'm argufying agin the world, agin facts, I tries to give in some and let the world get the best of the argument.' I've opinions the same as you have, but when they don't agree with the rest of the world, do I go snorting around a trying to show how the world is wrong and I am right? Sink me if I do. No, I tries to let the other fellow have a show. I may be right, but if I sees the world is agin me, I— Right you are, Trunnell. Spoken okay, said the skipper. I like to see a man what believes in a few things, even if they's elephants. What do you think of the fellow forwards? Do you believe in him to any extent? The third mate appeared much amused at the conversation, but did not speak. He was a remarkably good-looking young fellow, and I noted the fact at the time. Trunnell did not answer the last remark, but held himself very straight in his chair. "'Do you believe much in the fellow who was skipper, especially after his trying to carve Mr. Rolling?' "'I believe him a good sailor,' said Trunnell, stiffening up. "'You don't say,' said the skipper. "'I never criticizes my officers,' said Trunnell, and after that the skipper let him alone. I was pleased with Trunnell. His philosophy was all right.' and I believe from that time he was an honest man. Things began to look a little brighter, and in spite of an aversion to the skipper which had begun to creep upon me, I now saw that he was an observing fellow, and was quick to know the value of men. I didn't like his allusion to a bit and bar for a man, but thought little about the matter. In a short time Trunnell relieved me, and I went below with the carpenter and steward to our mess." The carpenter was a young Irishman, shipped for the first time. This was the first time I had been to sea with a ship carpenter who was not either a Russian, a Finn, or a Swede. The steward was a little mulatto, who announced, as he sat down, after bringing in the hash, that he was bloody glad he was an Englishman, and looked at me for approval. This was to show that he did not approve of the scene he had witnessed on the main deck in the morning, and I accepted it as a token of friendship. "'Tis cold the old man thinks it is, when he has the skylight wide open,' said Chips, looking up at the form of Trunnell, who stood on the poop. There was a strange light in the young fellow's eye as he spoke, as if he wished to impart some information, and had not quite determined upon the time and place. I took the hint, and smiled knowingly, and then glanced askance at the steward." "'Faith, he's all right,' blurted out Chips. "'His skin is a little off the colour of roses, but his heart is white. "'Where would ye, see?' 
"'With me for what?' I asked. "'Anything,' he replied. "'To go back, to go ahead. "'There's a fellow forwards who says, "'Go back while you may.' "'And it's a bloody good advice,' said the steward in a low tone. "'I'm not exactly in command aboard here,' I said. "'Do you know who is?' asked Chips. "'His name is Thompson, I believe.' I answered coldly, for I did not approve of this sudden criticism of the skipper, much as I disliked his style. "'See here, mate, you needn't think we're for saying again the old man, so hark ye, don't take it hard-like. Did you ever hear tell of a sailorman a-calling a line a rope, or a bloomin' hooker like this a boat? <laughs> no, sir, you can lay to it he's never had a ship before, and so says Jim Potts.' The same has passed the line for ye this morning. Can I pass ye the junk? It's sort of snifty for new slush, but I don't complain. What's the matter with the meat? I asked, glad to change the conversation. Just sort of snifty. That's what, corroborated the steward, looking at me, just sort of smelly like for new junk. What has Jim Potts got against the old man? I asked. You said he didn't believe the skipper had been in a ship before. Nothing I knows of, except he was hot for turning back this morning and tried to get the men to back him in coming aft. Do you mean it's mutiny? Lord, no. Just a blandander ye into tackin' ship. He most persuaded Mr. Trunnell, and with ye too, twould have been no mutiny to override the new skipper and land the other in the caboose. Much as I would have liked to get ashore again, I knew there was no immediate prospect of it. The skipper would not hear of any such thing. As for Trunnell acting against orders, I knew from what I had seen of this sturdy little fellow, he would obey implicitly any directions given him, and at any cost. There was no help for it now. We would be out for months with the ruffian skipper forward and the strange one aft. I said nothing more to the carpenter or steward, for it was evident that there had been some strong arguments used by Jim Potts against the regularity of the ship's company. The more I thought of this, the more I was astonished, for the young landsman was not forced to come out in the ship, and had almost been left as it was. I went on deck in a troubled frame of mind, and determined to keep my eye on every one who approached me, for the voyage had the worst possible beginning. There was much to be done about the main deck, so I busied myself the entire afternoon getting the running gear cleared up and coiled down shipshape. The skipper stood near the break of the poop much of the time, but gave no orders, and I noticed that Jim the sailor, or landsman, kept away from his vicinity. Sometimes it seemed as though the captain would follow his movements about the deck forward with his keen eyes. It was Trunnell's dog-watch that evening— and by the time the bells struck, the vessel was running along to the westward under royals, with a southerly breeze freshening on her beam. She was a handsome ship. Her long tapering spars rose, towering into the semi-gloom overhead, and the great fabric of stretched canvas seemed like a huge cloud resting upon a dark, floating object on the surface of the sea, which was carried along rapidly with it, 
brushing the foam to either side with a roaring, rattling, seething, musical noise. At least, this is the picture she presented from the forecastle head, looking aft. Her great main yard swung far over the water to leeward, and the huge bellying courses, setting tight as a drumhead with the pressure, sent the roaring of the bow-wave back in a deep, booming echo, until the air was full of vibration from the taut fabric. All around, the horizon was melted into haze, but the stars were glinting overhead in promise of a clear night. I left the forecastle head and came down on the main deck. Here the six-foot bulwarks shut off the view to windward, but little of the cool evening breeze. The men on watch were grouped about the waist, sitting on the combings of the after-hatch, or walking fore and aft in the gangways to keep the blood stirring. All had pea-coats or mufflers over their jumpers, for the air was frosty. The doctor had washed up his pots and coppers for the evening, and had made his way toward the carpenter's room in the forward house, where a light shone through the crack of the door. On nearly all American ships the carpenter is rated as an officer, but does not have to stand watch, turning out only during the daytime or when all hands are called in cases of emergency. The cook, or doctor, as he is called, also turns in for the night, as do the steward and cabin boys. The steward, however, generally has a stateroom aft near those of the mates, while the doctor bunks next his galley. The carpenter having permission to burn a light usually turns his shop or bunk-room into a meeting-place for those officers who rate the distinction of being above the ordinary sailor. Here one can always hear the news aboard ships, where the discipline is not too rigid, for the mates, bosun, doctor, steward, sometimes even the quartermasters, enjoy his hospitality. Trunnell was on the poop, and the captain was below. I had a chance to get a little better insight into the natures of my shipmates if I could join in their conversation, or even listen to it for a while. My position as second mate was not too exalted to prohibit terms of intimacy with a carpenter, or, for that matter, even the boatswain. I took a last look to windward, over the cold southern ocean, where the sharp evening breeze was rolling the short seas into little patches of white. The horizon was clear, and there was no prospect for some time of any sudden call to shorten sail. The sky was a perfect blue vault in which the stars were twinkling, while the red of the recent sunset held fair on the jibboom N, showing that the quartermaster at the wheel knew his business. I edged toward the door of the house, and then seeing that my actions were not creating too much notice from the poop, I slid back the white panel and entered. The fog from damp clothes and bad tobacco hang heavy in the close air, and made a blue halo about the little swinging lamp on the bulkhead. Chips, who was sitting on his sea-chest, waved his hand in welcome, and the doctor nodded and showed his white teeth. The boatswain was holding forth in full swing in an argument with one of the quartermasters, and Jim, the fellow I noticed in the morning, was listening. He arose as I entered, as also did the quartermaster, but the rest remained seated. I waved my hand in friendly acknowledgment and lit my pipe at the lamp, while they reseated themselves. "'Yeah, good morning to ye. If it ain't too late in the day,' said Chips, Sit ye down and listen to me song, for tis a quare ship, 
and the only thing to do is to square our luck with a good song. Cast loose, bosun. We were all new men to the vessel except the carpenter, and had never even sailed in the same ship before on any previous voyage. Yet the bosun cast loose without further orders, and the doctor joined in with his bass voice. Then Chips and the rest bawled forth to the tune of Blow a Man Down, and all the dismal prospect of the future in an overloaded ship, with bad food and a queer skipper, was lost in the effort of each one trying to outbellow his neighbour. Sailors are a strange set. It takes mighty little to please one at times when he should, with reason, be sad, while again, when everything is fair, nothing will satisfy his whims. When the yarn-spinning and singing were over, I turned out for my first watch well pleased with my shipmates. End of chapter